0: Let's get going. Hello, and welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. Um, Drawing a Dialogue is a podcast where we put comics into educational and historical contexts. Um, My name is Kathy G. Johnson. I'm a cartoonist, scholar, and educator. And my name is E. Jackson, and I'm a cartoonist, scholar. We want to thank Comic Arts... Los Angeles for inviting us. It's a very humbling and awesome experience. And thank you all for coming to see us in our our live recording of our show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I'm just going to start saying the topic summary, but is there anything you want to interject? No. All right. Um, so our episode summary, this is episode eight. It is titled History of Low Culture and the Benefits of Cartooning in Education. So the summary is, uh, historically, mass-produced media is monikered as low culture, while fine art is high. Where does this dichotomy come from? How are comics treated in this binary? And how can educators take advantage of it? Join us. Don't think you need to do that <laughs> um, while we dissect the accessible the history of accessible media and how comics in the classroom can benefit. Take it away, E. Oh cool. So um, if you've never listened to us normally,
1: I start off by kind of giving a overview of the historical kind of context of the show. Or not the show, the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so today I wanted to talk about Low culture, because we've already kind of, we did an episode about high art, um, kind of talking about, like, where this divide came from. We talked about, um, there's an essay by Clement Greenberg from the 40s called Avant-Garde versus Kitsch, where he kind of creates this idea of Kitsch being work that is, like, lesser, essentially, like, mass-produced. But he wasn't the creator of this idea of low culture. Um, so almost everything I'm talking about today is going to come from two books, A Social History of the Media by Asa Briggs and Peter Burke, which I actually, I have it with me. (laughs) And (laughs) Art in the Age of Mass Media by uh, John A. Walker. Basically, I'm just going to jump right into it if that's cool.
0: Yeah, no, please do. (laughs) All right. Tell me about it.
1: So the way we think of art and culture generally is divided into this hierarchy of high, middle and low. Um, And I'm going to read a quote real quick from Art in the Age of Mass Media. It is surely no coincidence that this hierarchical schema echoes the division of European society into three classes. The aristocracy, the bourgeoisie or middle class, and the proletariat or working class. So... Generally speaking, high art, high culture are things like fine art, which uh, is usually considered painting, sculpture, architecture, poetry, and music, um, opera, fancy theater. Like you, you know, you, you have like a mental image, right? Like when I say fine art, you can like think of it. Um, And then low art culture is generally things that are mass-produced. So mass media, advertising, um, pop movies, like summer thrillers, uh, TV shows. (laughs) Summer thrillers. You know, like 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 blockbusters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Comics, obviously. um, Paperback books, like romance novels, radio, newspaper, all that sort of thing. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying that there's no overlap. There's... Definitely comics that are considered into like the high culture category, usually that's in the form of literature. So like when we talk about comics that have kind of broken that barrier, they're still not considered high art. It's like mouse is considered like a fantastic piece of literature, but not yeah, yeah, yeah. a piece of high art. Yeah. Um, so I want to lay out a little bit of a timeline for you. Historically, the study of communication, um, oral and written, has existed since classical times.
0: Um, so it's classical times.
1: Greek-Roman.
0: All right, thank you. Yeah, classical time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know when the Greeks exist. (laughs) We're
1: talking from, like, a Western perspective of, like, Europe, mostly, to be clear. Um, Before the invention of the printing press in 1450, oral communication was the media, and that was, like, a hugely impactful thing, and it's really important not to... A lot of times when people talk about the print revolution, they act as if there was no media before print, but there definitely was. <laughs> it was just oral, like songs, plays, oral stories, that sort of thing. But the invention of print did change things, namely because it made it possible for people that were considered uh, lower in the social-cultural hierarchy to read and study religious texts without having to go to the authority of the church. Um, So from the get-go, people in higher societal positions, namely church figures, didn't like it. (laughs) Um, And this is a thing that comes up again and again where what happens is there's a technological advancement that makes it possible for people in a lower hierarchy Mm -hmm. to access information that was previously controlled by people in higher positions of power And so it's a bad thing, because we don't want that to be challenged. Um, And I have this really funny quote from, this is an English poet named Andrew Marvel in 1672. And he wrote, Oh, printing, how thou hast disturbed the peace of mankind. (laughs) Um, So, and this is actually interesting is that (laughs) newspapers were considered one of the most dangerous things like when newspapers first started being disseminated and people could get political news and economic news and all that no one thought newspapers were like a good thing people were very (laughs) anti-newspaper which is like interesting because now we think of newspapers as like a, a uh, tenet of our democracy.
0: What our grandpa reads. Well,
1: <laughs> my father's works at a newspaper, so I have a yeah. higher opinion, I guess, than most people. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So, when leisure reading became a thing, so reading for pleasure is relatively modern. Um, it began in the 14th, 15th century, so prior to that, reading was something you did for study. It wasn't like, oh, I have a nice book I want to read. When leisure reading became a thing, it was considered dangerous, especially when practiced by subordinate groups, which were women and the common people. Um, there was actually in the fifteen, the mid 1500s, a decline in images of the Virgin Mary reading in response to the demonization of reading by the Catholic Church.
0: So there were images of the Virgin Mary like yeah. reading books and stuff. Yeah, in the
1: Middle Ages, it was pretty common. There'd be like religious iconography of the Virgin Mary reading like a little religious text. Um, the Catholic Church didn't want people reading because oh. it meant that they could think for themselves about the tenets of Catholicism. (laughs) Um, So they banned images of people reading in religious imagery. Um, And this is a quote from... Uh, the social history of the media, the dangers of reading fiction, especially for women, were regularly discussed by male writers by the early 16th century onward. Um, So again, over and over again, this is echoing concerns that people used to have about theater. Like back when theater, and it's still, we've talked about, like theater is still considered kind of like...
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, theater is still where um, the queers go. Yeah. Right? It still has like a certain... Uh, t- yeah. flavor to it. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure
1: like that's a pretty commonly taught thing, too, that like Shakespeare in his time was considered like lowbrow, and it was like, common people enjoyed plays, so they're dangerous and they corrupt us. Yeah, um, sure. <laughs> so basically what I'm getting at is, throughout history, there have been advancements in communication technology, or cultural developments that led to something being widely enjoyed um, by lower-class people, and When this happens, it is demonized and looked down upon and separated from the activities that are enjoyed by um, people in higher societal positions. And I'm saying that instead of just higher classes because this is, I'm talking like pre-capitalism, so it wasn't the same. There's always been like strata, but it's revolved around different things.
0: Can you tell me what continents we're talking about? Europe. 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 Okay.
1: Yeah. printing has a very different history in Asia, depending on where you are. Like China and Japan had block printing for centuries because they had a different type, you know, like the language is different. And then I think this is interesting. Korea actually developed a printing press really similar to the Gutenberg Mm -hmm. printing press, like before Gutenberg did. And people think that that might've been why that like, they were like, oh no, the Koreans did it. So we have to do it. Oh no. (laughs) Um. So that's pre-industrialization is what I'm talking about. Then we get into industrialization. Industrialization is this huge, big cultural thing that would take way too long for me to break down. Um, but it's really important because it allows for the creation of modern manufacturing methods, which really importantly means reproduction. So reproduction, this idea that you can make something and then you can make it again and again and again and again really cheaply and distribute it really cheaply so it's no longer... Um, like handmade, handwritten texts that take forever and ever.
0: Um, Illuminated manuscripts. Right.
1: Interestingly, um, Marxism developed in the 19th century as a response to this. Um, Marx was a really big fan of steam and a really big fan of industrialization, but saw revolution through class struggle between the owners of the machines and the proles that worked for them. Marx actually came up with the term hegemony. Oh, yeah. Um, which we now use, like, constantly to describe. So,
0: uh, explain. Uh, just summarize it for me. Yeah, real he- quick. Let me just Just Google, hegemony, Been for a Google hegemony for you. I'm going to Google hegemony for you. Basically, um,
1: leadership or dominance, especially by one country or social group over others. So, cool. like, working, like, the higher-up hegemony over um, recording. No, not recording. Reproduction. Yeah. Stuff. So, this is where we start to get into this idea of, like, how does this fit in with the arts? Um, in the Middle Ages and, and ancient times, um, visual arts were crafts, like shoemaking or cooking, things that um, were useful, served a purpose. In the Renaissance onward, artists succeeded in raising the low social status of the visual arts by emphasizing their intellectual, theoretical, and learned character. So this change comes after print, after the Reformation, and enforces the idea, it re- creates this idea that reproduction, um, the idea of like making something multiple times, reduces the aesthetic value of it. So the importance is that they're making like this one special item for this one special purpose, and it's tied to this. Um. So mass replication via modern manufacturing undermines the fine arts by threatening to get rid of their mystique. So we think of the arts as like very mystified, right? Like we don't know how it's done. Com- Where does your inspiration come from? We <laughs> can't so, connect okay. that's to that's it. The
0: question everyone gets.
1: You know, if you're not an artist, you just don't understand, right? Yeah. Um, fine art does do reproductions, um and did them prior to modern methods but it's very carefully controlled in the form of limited editions uh-huh. right or like in the case of photography there's like the one special photo right there's like the one main i think they call it like a silver print and then like all the others are like lesser value mm. um and these preserve the special authenticity of the original modernism is an art movement is very into authenticity so modernism is the movement that clement greenberg who i mentioned earlier was writing about 1950s. We're we're
0: hopping centuries here.
1: We're well after industrialization. It starts to move really fast. Okay. Yeah. Um, So historically, um, historically, fine arts is associated with certain mediums. I talked about that before. It's painting, sculpture, architecture, poetry, music. Those are the historical fine arts. Um, Contemporarily, obviously, fine artists employ a lot of technology. Right. Like no one, pe- there are people who are still doing like very meticulous old school methods, but like people use productions. There's digital videos and things like that. Um, and the connection then isn't that fine art is not made with modern technology. It's that fine art is functionally useless. <laughs> it's fine art because the only purpose
0: it serves is that it's art. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh. uh, well. You know, functionally useless is so dramatic. Like <laughs> <know. a> say. <laughs> um, it's useless. <laughs> of course, it's not like that's not. I'm not being literal. It's not really know, useless.
1: But um, music <laughs> art has become decontextualized through museums and art galleries, which are fairly recent. Those did not used to be a thing. Um, this is like something that started in the 19th century, um, and the idea is that you take fine art out of its original cont- con- uh, context, put it up on display on a wall. What is it about? What does the artist mean? What are his intentions?
0: Okay. What are his thoughts?
1: So. Um,
0: Wait, what's the context before that? Churches?
1: Yeah, usually like church iconography, religious purposes, okay. or like people commissioned it for things.
0: For their homes, yeah. portraits. Okay, okay. Yeah.
1: So, uh, and relating to that, fine arts for a really long time was funded by the interests of the ruling class. So. Again, Clement Greenberg talks about this a little bit in Avant-Garde versus Kitsch where he talks about how uh, artists want to like, overthrow the yoke of capitalism, but they're tied to it because rich people have the money and the money is how they can continue to make art. Um, in the 18th to 19th centuries, this is the like, ruling class is replaced by middle class and that's actually true today is that um, the majority of art is bought and sold by people of the middle class. So the actual notion of mass culture... Doesn't actually enter our lexicon until the early 1900s. Uh, by 1914 is the exact date that uh, Social History of the Media gave me.
0: It's the exact date of what? 1914? When
1: mass culture enters our lexicon. So, like, by oh, 1914. Oh, the words 14, mass culture. Yeah, okay. The cool. phrase mass culture. Had not, there was not, that wasn't a thing before. Cool. People talked about the masses and like controlling the masses and like being afraid of mobs without leaders but this idea of mass culture and it's complemented by the phrase mass society and elites these are modern terms these are recent um scholarship on like i was saying scholarship on the crowd kind of began in the 1800s I talked about I've talked mentioned before. There's an essay called "Culture and Anarchy" um, that was written prior to was written in the 1800s, where they talked about culture being a study of perfection and anarchy being something that lacks standards and direction. And so, again, high culture controls anarchy and yada
0: um, like lacks <laughs> standards. I like
1: that. Yeah, and. The idea is that this is very like against uh, utilitarianism. So again, art for art's sake, not art that serves a purpose. And it's true, like we do devalue
0: craft, right? Like um, craft as in not craft as in making anything, but craft as in like, like shoes and purses and quilts
1: and sh- comes to mind. Okay, yeah, right. textile work, that kind of thing. Yeah, things that have a purpose.
0: Things, things with purpose. Things that are functionally useful.
1: Yeah, cool. that might actually people might be able to relate to. Um, another issue with mass media is that it's typically collective, collectively made, collaboratively made. Um, so it's really hard to identify a primary author. And pr- authorship is another like fairly recent, that became a thing in the like, 1500s that people actually cared about who wrote stuff. So it's hard for us to think of people who work on mass media as artisans, because we don't know their names right? And we don't, and it's like generally things are divided up. And you see that in comics, too, where... Yeah, I was
0: going to say, that happened significantly later for comics. Yeah, it happens
1: in comics where people, there's, like you know, the a writer, an artist, a colorist, an anchor, and so it ha- it's like devalues.
0: Well, and also, the art artists didn't have their names on it. It was all the author right. up until the 1960s when fans started to demand. This yeah. is also still in North America that yeah. we're talking, but um, when fans started to demand to ask who who drew this comic. (laughs) Right, yeah.
1: (laughs) Whereas, like, no one thought that was important before, which is just wild. Um, So the art world maintains this divide, right? And we continue to think of low culture as, like, because it's reproduced and because it's widely accessible and enjoyed by everyone, and there's not a mysticism to it that there is in fine art. It's devalued. Um, so really, this comes down to accessibility, classism, and modernism. <laughs> um, so comics, specifically, I'm going to tie us back into comics real quick. Um, comics are considered lowbrow art. There are comics that have broken out of low culture status, but that's through accessing the idea of being literature, which is interesting because literature, even like things we think of as like classics and great books, they are kind of mass produced like there's you know like Mm -hmm. lots of books made but it doesn't like have the same devaluing effect that an art object has to be like the one that was made and has is in a museum and it's the only one and copies are bad so i think that's why i think that's probably why it's a little easier for comics to break into like literature Mm -hmm. as like a high culture thing than art
0: interesting yeah isn't that like yeah you're posing your theory yeah,
1: <laughs> that's my theory. Yeah, um, and I mean, also, it has to do with the fact that mo- modern art critics really wanted nothing to do with comics. Because in the um, '60s and '70s, when um, like comic artists started to kind of rebel against this idea that comics weren't art, and that's where you get like low um, underground comics where they're like embracing this idea of like, okay, we're not art, we won't be art, and like really going ham on it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of that was because critics were like. We don't want to talk we're about it. Gonna stop, <laughs> we're not right? going to look at this. We're not going to acknowledge it exists, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but something being accessible, and this is what I wanted to kind of drive home here. Something being accessible isn't a bad thing. Um, and the focus shouldn't... My focus as, like, a scholar and, like, my, what I hope to kind of impart to you guys is that we shouldn't be working on elevating comics to that, like, high culture status, but we should be instead, like, working on breaking down the idea that something being... Low culture makes it bad, right? Mm -hmm. This thing being easily accessible, that's something that gives people information, gives them power, right, is, like, dangerous. And that's what I got, so. Cool. Thank (laughs)
0: you so much, E. Um, So now it's time for my segment, which is called Education Evaluation. Um, So comic books being cheap and accessible to everyone – uh, no matter their social c- circumstance, is sort of the critical motivation for our scholarly work, mm-hmm. and to, we want to recognize the artistic, literary, and beneficial qualities of comics, as I'm sure everyone in this room probably feels that way as well. Yeah. Um, it is necessary to evaluate... To elevate educators' um, understanding of the medium and the incredible opportunities a comic education offers, so that those educators can then go on to cre- teach exciting and enriching programs to their students. Um, so I sort of my first section is sort of the arts, and I, I keep saying the arts, and I do mean with a capital T and a capital A, um, much like what E was just talking about. Um, so, uh, the arts and its problems. Um, one of them is the alienation issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as a re- result of class distinction um, between different types of media, um, the arts can be alienating for a lot of people. Art can create social order and class divisions. And as a result, many people believe art is outside their realm of possibility. Um, the average adult is a nervous to pick up a pencil and draw. I think it's really awesome that Kala has like free drawing tables for anyone. Um, it's a good way to break down that barrier. Yeah, um, And children can oppress their own creativity. Uh, people can feel like they don't have the skills or the knowledge to be an artist. People think that they don't know what real art is and that their creative thoughts and beliefs don't count. So another issue with the arts is accessibility. Um, the inexpensive and accessible quality of comic books is, is, is as important to the artistic benefits of cartooning. People of lower socioeconomic statuses can be cut off from the arts, which is a classist attitude implicitly maintained throughout various areas of society. An example, I have just like one example, but I'm sure everyone has examples like this. Uh, Raising entrance fees for art museums has been shown to create lower attendance. Um, This is an article from the Indianapolis Monthly. Um, It's called Drawing Conclusions. It was written in 2016. It's by author Comiskey. Um, here's a quote, "Since 2014, museum memberships had doubled from 8,000 to 16,000. He's talking about the Indianapolis Art Modern Art Museum. Noticeably absent from the, the speech, however, was the mention of any IMA's um, biggest news from 2015, the introduction of the $18 admission charge after being free for almost the past half century. So, not only, so attendance dropped from 400,000 annual visitors to 160,000, which is a drop of 60%. But their museum membership has doubled, and the membership costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Um, so, this was hailed as a success, successful program, because they were more interested in creating more revenue than they were interested in creating more attendance. Um, however, um, we talk about libraries a lot. But yeah. Libraries are where comics are housed and they are free and accessible to everyone. Um, support your local library. Support your local library. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why are art, the arts good in education? This seems like an argument that um, I just finished my master's degree in art education and it seemed about half of my classmates basically did their master's degree in why we need art in schools. It seems like we shouldn't have to keep talking about this, but it's continued to be devalued in mm-hmm. schools. Just, this is just from the PBS website, and it says that um, <laughs> art education gives students motor skills, language development, decision-making skills, visual learning skills, inventiveness, self-expression, cultural awareness, improved academic performances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. There's uh, also this um, quote. I really adored this quote by an author named Mark Graham. It is from an article in Studies in Art Education, published in 2003. Um, His article is titled, Responding to the Demise of Adolescent Art Making, Charting the Course of Adolescent Development in an Exceptional Art Classroom. So this is quite a long quote, bear with me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. The precipitous decline in artistic activity among older children is one of the most challenging problems for artistic development. Ask a group of kindergarten students, can you draw, and many will raise their hands. But very few 12th graders will say, yes, I can draw. Adolescence is a time of deep and conflicting feelings about identity, when it is p- possible to, c- to, con- to contemplate many abstract notions where there is an increasing ability to discern aesthetic qualities and imagery. It seems like a perfect time for artistic expression. Yet the sad fact about artistic development among older children is that there is so little of it. As PRIZER notes PRIZER is someone he's quoting, blah blah blah. Early adolescence is the graveyard of artistic activity. Most secondary art programs are designed for students who will choose to become art majors or go on to art schools. The visual arts are seen usually are usually seen as the exclusive domain of the artistically gifted. Mm-hmm. The abandon of art making is not a problem if graphic representation is viewed as idiosyncratic aspect of development reserved for the gifted child. So he's just saying development art of art making should not be reserved for just gifted children. Right. What if art making and artistic understanding hold more developmental possibilities? What if graphic expression is a unique way of thinking, understanding, and knowing the world outside ourselves? Much of our understanding of who we are comes to us through the visual artifacts of our culture. The need to shape, meaning, and construct knowledge is central to development. And visual artistry is a unique way to represent understanding. The mind is a cultural achievement and art education is ultimately about the development of the mind. Furthermore, learning in the arts cultivates habits of thinking that have profound implications for learning in other disciplines, and the entire education, educational experience is impoverished without the contribution of the artistic dimension. Thank you. <laughs> um, how, can comics, so how can comics be used to get students into art? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just have a few, like a bunch of numbers, but I'm sure a lot of people in this room already know this. Comic box books are extremely popular among the lives of young people. Um, between the years of 2000 and 2015, estimated sales by the largest comic book distributor, diamond comic distributors, reported a 268% growth from $255 million to $940 million, 2016. The Young Adult Library Services Association Yasla has been publishing the great graphic novels for teens annually since 2007. Jean Yang got um uh, the MacArthur Fellowship grant. Um, Raina Telgemeiner spent 240 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list until that category was eliminated. Um, <laughs> the Washington Post reports that the only uh, area with adult fiction that rose in sales between 2015 and 2016 was comic and graphic novels with a whopping 12% increase. Every other category that they watch decreased in publishing. So it's very popular, E.
1: Yeah, it is. Comic
0: books. They are very popular.
1: Well, even so, I work in a museum and like a dedicated drawing space where people can come in to draw. And I I talk to kids constantly, and every single time I'm like, oh, I draw comics, they're like, I love comics. I want to draw comics. I'm like, yeah, draw comics.
0: Uh, Yeah. So there are numbers to prove the popularity of comic books, but there's also people. Ask any librarian, as any librarian will tell you, if comic books fly off the shelves. Children and teens read comic books voraciously. Yep. Uh, Publishers are expanding the industry now. Everyone wants a YA graphic novel, right? (laughs) Um, So it's popular. It's Mm -hmm. a popular media. But that begs the question, is it art? And then another question, does it matter? So categorizing comics as art, uh, E sort of touched upon this. Yeah. Um, categorizing comic books as a form as an art form has been in debate since the beginning of comic books. Big names in the industry have also often embraced their counterculture nature, right? So Beatty, this is a quote from this book. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Beatty, uh, 2012, Comics versus Art. Largely ignored by critics and art historians and consequently disdainful of the interests of those groups, comics have long reveled in their lowbrow bad boy image. Um, so Ivan Brunetti, who um, he, ha- he has his own uh, comic art education book. It's titled Cartooning, Philosophy, and Practice. It also sort of embraces this viewpoint. He says, um, the search for meaning, catharsis, and dignity, and the humble act of cartooning may seem like an especially delusional quest. Who, after all, wants to take lessons from losers? So this prevailing attitude supports the idea that comics are not worthy as an art form, an attitude often happily embraced by cartoonists themselves. It is not surprising, considering that in, that in order to be a cartoonist, many had to overcome marginalization in the art classroom. So um, this is a quote from uh, Jeff Adams in his 1999 article of Mice and Manga, Comics and Graphic Novels in Art Education. He points out the lack of comics education before college-level education. Um, So here's a quote from Adams. The close linkage between the forms of animation, comics, and graphic novels has, particularly in Japan and increasingly elsewhere, made for a specific cultural formation that has a significant impact on the visual arts across the Western world. There's that word again, Western. We, we try to say North American because, you yeah. know, West, ugh, ugh, it's the worst. All right, anyway, <laughs> um, in the last 30 years. Looking at mainstream art curriculum programs and attendant art history literature in the corresponding period, one would often be forgiven for believing that this cultural phenomenon has not happened, even in a minor way. Notwithstanding the tendency for some curriculum governing bodies to ignore or conceal cultural paradigms perceived to be popular, it is also a surprising lack of serious practice or analysis occurring within mainstream visual education prior to specialized courses at university art court at university art courses. So basically what I'm saying is um, if you cartoon when you're a kid, it's oftentimes not what your art teacher is sort of looking for, right? She's sort of looking for you to draw realistically, Mm -hmm. comic books don't really count as drawing. They're always usually looking for something else, and that specialization. I mean, it sort of ignores it's. Um, it's not culturally responsive education, which is like responding to the culture of which your students are arriving to your classroom from. It's sort of imposing your idea, and usually it's a fine art, elitist idea. Yep. Um, um, so, what are cool things that comics can offer kids? Um, What I've learned in my time as a community-based arts educator is that comic books offer a variety of entry points to children into a pathway to creativity. Comics can be metaphorical, symbolic, artistic, passionate, and open-minded. And a a young artist can write to visualize images and draw to create narrative.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry not to interrupt you, but I've talked about this too, where comics are uniquely suited to represent memory um, they're really good entry points for talking about like serious issues in people's lives, and that does apply to children as
0: well. Yeah, yeah. Kids got serious things to go talk about.
1: Yeah, and comics are um, because of the way comics use panels with gutters. Um, they actually mimic traumatic memory, like visually on the paper. Um, so they are uniquely suited to depictions of trauma, of like uh, disaster images, of like things like that that people need to work through, basically.
0: Yeah, and especially if you are still in language development, mm-hmm. like a lot of children are, to be able to use some words and to be able to use some images is um, helpful to be able to put your thoughts into yeah. a way in which some, someone else can consume your thoughts. Yeah. That sounds so dramatic. Someone else can consume your thoughts. <laughs> so, you know, read your book. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to be able to read words to read a comic. Um, and then uh, so writing and drawing can feed into each other. They scaffold a st- student's creativity to greater heights. And best of all, it's um, simple. You know You can just hold a pencil, you can make a comic. And pencils are cheap. Um, <laughs> this might seem dramatic, but uh, if uh, art education is treated as unimportant in schools, it's not going to get a lot of funding or budget. Um, So art supplies such as paints and clay can be expensive. Material costs, which can be detrimental to the arts classroom, especially in public schools and community centers um, that are working within a budget. But comics can be made with a number two pencil and paper, which are materials that are readily available in any North American school. Um, So the arts alienation and bridging that gap. Um, That's this amorphous idea that comics may or may not be art that I think art educators can take advantage of. Yeah. Comic books are a populist medium, and they can be used to bridge the divide between people who think they are, who already think of themselves as creative, and people who don't think they're creative. The purpose is not to elevate comic books to fine art. Yes. <laughs> That's I, I, I'm not interested in that, um, but to capitalize on the opportunities it presents. Elitism is not elitism is not the end goal. It's a positive thing that graphic novels can be borrowed from the library and that web comics and Japanese manga fan translations can be read for free online. Comic books' popularity, accessibility, and artistic approachability create a fantastic opportunity that art educators can take advantage of. Yeah. Cartooning offers an adaptable art education for children of all experiences. Graphic novels have multiple entry points that allow students to create, to explore the medium and develop their own creativity. Drawings can develop storytelling and words can instigate imagery. So I have a quote from a. Olson in her book, uh, Envisioning Writing, that ta- summarizes these advantages. When children are educated in both the visual and verbal modes of learning, they can move back and forth between those, these domains without effort. When the verbal mode is no longer able to provide information or insight, the child then can move naturally and comfortably to the visual mode for for new insight and new information. In addition to creating multiple entrances for imagination, the adaptability of comic books creates opportunities to address the diversity of experiences in children's development. Cartooning can speak directly to children of marginalized experience, who children who, in in any aspect, are made to feel small by the culture and society in which they find themselves. In my practice, I pay attention to the needs of all students that range. So here's the range of students, neurodiversity, socioeconomic status, race, gender, sexuality, transgender status, immigration status, and uh, any other number of intersectional and marginalized identities. Right. Children of minority experience have unique competencies that deserve inclusion and integration. Uh, Children should be given tools to not only explore identity, but to grow, be empowered, and thrive. Art offers gateways and counter-narratives for marginalized children. Um, My educational practice focuses on the positive identity-building aspects of creativity. There is often a lack of space to create or explore um, are the identity of marginalized youth who are inundated with the narrative that has been written for them, stratified by prejudice, discrimination, and segregation. The common narrative is often one of deficit and overcoming odds. Art can lead to development of counter-narrative for a child to create, explore, and expand their realities. So this research uncovers ways to avoid narrow definition of art and education to be able to offer critical perspectives on ways to be inclusive and inviting. Um, um, this is a, the comic in- book industry is highly aware of these issues. Um, so diverse books is a mantra that this current landscape um, of publishing talks about a lot. Um, so this, we need diverse books as a program, for 2016. Yeah. Um, so I'm, ab- I'm submitting the idea of expanding this discussion into the intersection of graphic novels, child development, and art education. Not just in publishing. Yeah. Um, So my final section here is about community arts. Um, So there's a social stigma that not everyone can be be the person who creates art. And some children and adults are terrified of acknowledging their rights to be creative. Um, so last year, um, I wrote a biography of an arts educator. His name is Walker Metling. He's the co-founder of the Providence Comics Consortium, which is a series of comics creation classes taught in libraries in Providence.
1: We have, a, um, we have an interview with him that you can
0: listen to. Yeah, I, just, I just finished interviewing him. <laughs> um, I have a few quotes for him. One is, there's no, there's no way that a ch- kid could fail at drawing, but in his own head is an unsafe space and the world in general, that he feels like he can't even draw something silly. So uh, from this biography I've written, the beginning of comics creation classes for Walker in libraries is the key to the conception of the project. The library being one of the only socialist institutions and free indoor spaces that's left in the United States. Through the library and the students there, Walker has met kids who have now gone on to be teenagers and adults, who either stay in Providence as artists or move away, retaining Providence as a touchstone. We're both from Providence. I didn't say that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, So these classes can can provide a bridge for students into a weirdo art scene that can otherwise be inaccessible. Mm -hmm. Um, The involvement within libraries is a cultural bridge for people who may otherwise be unaware of the arts community around them. Um, so arts and cre- this is my conclusionary statement. Uh-huh. Arts and creativity should be accessible to everyone. The arts can appear to have class boundaries, keeping people out. But your favorite artists c- should be your friends and people in your community, and that cultivation of the people around you is important.
1: Yeah. So do you? Thank want- you. You yes, thank you. Do you, <laughs> you want to take a couple
0: questions? Oh, yeah. We didn't warn you guys, but we're here. We were going to do some questions. So if you have questions. Yeah. um, Yeah, yeah,
1: totally. Hi, E from the future here. Um, You can't hear it in the recording, unfortunately, but they asked us to expand on what Kathy mentioned about Walker and uh, his programs at uh, Providence Libraries.
0: Yeah. So um, uh, Walker Metling, he is the co-founder, he founded it with quite a few other people um, of the Providence Comics Consortium. And they've published, he's been doing the this, so they do classes, free classes, after school classes in libraries. Um, oftentimes in Providence, and it's probably true for a lot of other areas, um, library, public libraries serve as a place for students, to, for kids to go after school if they don't have any after school activities um, to wait for their families to mm-hmm. finish working. Um, and so a lot of libraries create programs and they're always looking for, um, teachers, anything, um, in order to provide something for the students who are there anyway. Um, so they're not just playing Minecraft on the computer. Um, Um, and oftentimes... Kids won't have art class in their school, or it'll just be once a week or something like that. So they like art classes. Um, and so Walker has been doing this for the past seven years. They've published 25 books. They'll be kids' comics and adults' comics mixed together. Um, that's how I got my start teaching, mm-hmm. it was as an assistant for Walker. Um, and sort of what I like about that project is it has like a very Um, it's just it has a radical nature to it where it is bringing arts to um, students who don't otherwise have it and it's empowering in that they can just sort of draw anything they want and it's celebrated and published (laughs) yeah
1: and then uh, they followed up to ask if there was any similar programs in Los Angeles
0: um um I'm gonna refer to Kala do you know of anything no not Yeah, yeah, okay,
1: yeah. But I mean, definitely, what I would do if you're interested in that sort of thing in LA, look for the friends of whatever library it is that your whatever your local library is. They usually have a friends group. That um, friends groups kind of help provide funding to libraries through programming and events, and they usually are looking for volunteers. I work with the friends of my library, (laughs) Um, and if you reach out to them, they would probably be happy to at least tell you what they're doing. If not, like work something else out very large fund, actually, for projects like that. Cool, I was just about to say. um, Someone in the back is (laughs) raising their hand very excitedly. Oh, okay. Hi. Um, Actually, there's an um, organization called Heart of LA that um, is doing a
0: lot work. Heart of LA? Heart of LA. LA, Walker actually recommended me that, like, a year ago. Oh, cool, all right. (laughs) A Walker recommendation, perfect. So we're gonna do our little (laughs) sign-off here. Yeah. Um, So first, I want to thank Downtown Boys for their song, Wave of History. It's our intro and outro. It's off their album, Full Communism. You can buy it at their band camp. Um, So you can see more information from us and more podcast stuff and more comic education stuff at comicarted.com. You can also go over to drawingadialogue.com, which is where we're going to have citation for all. We always try to have... Publish all of our resources and citations, because mm-hmm. this isn't us, this is everyone, yeah. right? Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, and you can follow us on Twitter at Draw a Dialogue. Um, and we have at our table, we are at 42 AMB, and we have postcards with everything and little buttons that
0: we will have. give you. We forgot to bring the buttons. <laughs> we <laughs> no, have three to bring buttons. Them. You can have them. So <laughs> yeah, you can have a button if
1: you want. Um and you can follow me on Twitter at e That's E-H-E-T-J-A. And again, I have business cards at my table. That
0: you and can I have. am at Kathy G. John. Um, so what are you reading, E? So on my flight here, um, I watched the
1: Emoji Movie twice. Because the first time, I fell asleep about 20 minutes in. Oh. And I woke up at the end. Is that not a sign? <laughs> <laughs> I had to leave at, like, 4 a.m. for my flight.
0: so I, I left at 4 a.m. too. It's a six-hour flight, six flight from Boston.
1: <laughs> um, well, no, so I, I watched a couple other things, then I went back and watched the Emoji Movie again. So that was that.
0: Oh, um, you're oh, not going to tell us anything about the Emoji Movie? Do you want emoji. to know
1: anything about the Emoji Movie? Do you want to tell me <laughs> anything
0: about it? Is it a threat?
1: <laughs> I, I don't think... Any, a lot happens. It's
0: not very good.
1: Um, what are you reading, Kathy? (laughs)
0: Um, well, I I wrote it down, so I'll remember. I am reading Brothers of the Wild North Sea. It's by Harper Fox. It's a gay Viking romance. (laughs) I'm only (laughs) in, in the, I'm in the middle of chapter three. Um, it was recommended to me by someone on Twitter. Please always recommend me your gay Viking romances. And recommend them to
1: me, too, <laughs> while we door's at wide it.
0: open. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what else do we do? Um, I don't remember. Oh, that's it. Now oh, let it. me play the outro.
1: Oh, are we going to play it again? <laughs> okay. Yes, of course. <laughs> it's not the part that I usually use for the outro, but okay.